Good morning again and thank you to, uh, to David and to Lise and Tamara for the music as well. Um, if your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 3 for me please. As we conclude our look at this particular verse and our look at sin today. Hebrews 3.13 But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your, your, your mercy upon us. We thank you for your patience. We thank you for your word that we can look in this morning. We just pray that you would enlighten our understanding. Your spirit would lead us into your truth and that you would use me to convey what you would have us to learn today. We thank you for the great salvation which we share and the fellowship which comes by knowing Jesus Christ. We pray that his name would be lifted up this morning. We pray that he gets the glory, for he deserves it all. In his name we pray. Amen. The first time I um, uh, encountered cancer uh, in my family was when I was about eight years old. Um, I remember my little cousin, who had just been born, after about being a year old, was diagnosed with liver cancer. And one of the reasons that I'm here today is because she contracted liver cancer, believe it or not. She, her being sick, and she was the first, my uncle's first child, um, caused him to go searching for the truth, believe it or not. The fact that, that his daughter, that his baby daughter had cancer um, caused him to question all things about life and religion and all those sorts of things. And he eventually came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and he became a Christian. And because of that, we were exposed to the gospel for years and years. But I remember because they, they did an operation or she'd had an operation, they, they said they successfully cut out the, uh, the, the cancer from her liver. But after about three or four years, she died because it came back the second time. So the first thing I remember, and I remember when I was told that my little cousin had passed away, I remember, I think I was only about 10 years old, I was looking out the window and I'm just thinking, I'm not going to see my cousin anymore. But it didn't dawn on me how bad this thing actually was until my grandmother passed away, the same thing. Her name was Angela, the same as my little cousin. And both of them were angels, in a sense, because the name Angela comes from the word angel. And she passed away with cancer as well. My grandmother had a profound Im impact on my life because she looked after me um, almost as much as my mum did. But while my mum worked during the day, especially when I was growing up, my grandmother would look after me. So I, remember, I have vivid memories of her. And she was a very gentle sort of person. But when she contracted cancer, um, I saw her die in bed, basically. But the beautiful thing about that was she gave her heart to the Lord before she died. I remember even baptising with my uncle, her in the bath. That's how committed she was to the Lord. And the, 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 the final person that, that probably hit me hard in terms of cancer was my own father, who passed away. And once again, I had the blessing of, of, and the hope that he gave his heart to the Lord before he passed away as well. The Lord knows that, though. Almost half the people that we know are going to be diagnosed with cancer. One way or another, one in two people, they tell us, are going to be diagnosed with some form of cancer in their life. Some will die from it, some will survive it. But it affects everyone, doesn't it? Because most of us know someone who's been hit by this thing. The thing is about cancer, it's a funny, it's a funny um, illness, isn't it? It's not an illness that's easily diagnosable because it can get you from all different places. Cancer that's, that's, that's caught in the bowel or the liver or the, the lung, they're all different types of cancers. So you, there's not one treatment that treats them all. You need all different types of treatments and that's, that's what keeps these doctors and specialists working because it's, it's not just one thing to fix everything. And sometimes the treatment for cancer is worse than the actual cancer itself. But the fact that doctors 
and people are willing to go through such difficult treatment. When you think of chemotherapy and what it does to a person, it almost kills them. But you have to go through the treatment to destroy the cancer, don't you? Or you have to have an operation to cut the cancer out completely. Like I've said, cancer is a very complicated sort of thing. And cancer, when you, if you're ever diagnosed with cancer, it's, I would say it's, it's smart to be fearful because it can kill you. It basically eats you from the inside out. That's why every precaution has to be taken and every, when you find out you have it, they have to go to extreme lengths to get rid of it. And Jesus knew the same thing about sin. Sin is like cancer. In many respects, it's very similar. Jesus knew it was so serious a thing that he said, if your eye offend you, pluck it out. If your hand offend you, cut it off. That's how serious Jesus understood sin. He, he treated it almost as if it was a cancerous thing. And it is a cancerous thing. Because once it starts, once it, it's inside a person, it continues to grow till it consumes them. The other thing that cancer is similar to, in terms of sin, or the, the, why sin is similar to cancer, is if someone has battled cancer before and has eradicated the cancer, if they get it again the second time, does it come back more easily the second time or does it come back a lot harder? Every case I've known, the second time you get cancer, it's much, much harder to kill. And that is also like sin. You may fight sin or fight a particular sin and, and, and eradicate it from your life, but if you allow it to come back again the second time, it's much harder to get rid of. Much, much harder to get rid of. And I know many people today who were affected by sin in that way. They have this thing festering inside them and they cannot get rid of it. They don't even know where to start getting rid of it. Today's sermon is going to be a wrap-up of the last three sermons. I'm going to give you a bit of a um, summary of where we've come from and a conclusion to the whole thing because it says here, exhort one another daily, warn, encourage, do what you can to help the other people around you to fight this thing. Because this thing, we've seen people die from cancer, correct? We know many people die from cancer all the time. But I'll tell you something, we know a lot more that have, that have gone to an eternal hell because of sin. It's much worse than cancer. It has a 100% success rate unless the person is being saved by Jesus Christ. It kills Almost always. Let's recap some of the sermons that we've been through already. In the first sermon, we saw that every person is born with a sinful nature, a desire to sin. We're born with it. We grow into it. It's something that we love doing, and we don't understand when we do it what we're doing to ourselves. And the reason is that our original parents broke God's law. They sinned. They rebelled. And so, as their descendants, we do the same. Then we saw that God introduced the law. And the law is a bit like a diagnosis thing. You know, like the, you know, when you go to the doctors and they try to diagnose what illness you have and where it's coming from? It told us that we were sick. It told us that we, we were sinful as people and that we had this thing inside us that was growing. It gave us knowledge of our sin. The only problem with the law, though, is that it could, even though it revealed our sin, it couldn't help us with our sin. It didn't provide the cure. It just said, you are going to die because you have this disease. So we were left hopeless in a situation where we couldn't save ourselves. The other thing that it revealed, God's law revealed, was that how, how perfect God was. Because God wasn't infested with this, this illness. God didn't have this problem. And God's standard, when it was put in front of us, showed us how, how bad we were compared to him, how sick we were. 
but the law could only condemn us. And the penalty was death. In fact, when God put his law in front of us, which was meant to show us how bad we were, what it did to us, it made us even more sinful. It stirred up rebellion within us. It stirred up our pride. And we said, how dare you tell me what I've got something wrong with me? How dare you say that you're perfect but I'm not? So then we sinned even more. So there we stood, condemned by the law of God, without hope until God sends us his son. Who wasn't infested with sin. Who was born of a virgin, who lived the perfect life, and who then decided because he loved us so much, not because we were lovable, not because we deserved anything, because he chose to love us, he said, I'm going to take their place. I'm going to pay the penalty for that thing so they don't have to die. And he did. He gave us the perfect example of what a life without sin looks like. And then he paid the penalty for us as the Lamb of God. Then he did something else for us. When he rose from the grave and when he ascended into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit to this earth. The Holy Spirit that could indwell our hearts and give us a new nature, a nature that wasn't infested with sin. Something new was planted within us. Oh, the old was still there floating around, but the new couldn't be infected. The new is what the Holy Spirit was working with. God had reconnected us to himself. And all those who trusted in Christ were given a new nature a nature that is able to please God, that is able to fellowship with God, a new nature that gave us life eternal. Sermon 2. In the second sermon, we saw that the source of sin was within ourselves. Oftentimes people say, the devil made me do it. Well, the devil didn't have to even make you do anything. Because by nature, we do those things. By nature, the, the old, the flesh that's within us likes to sin. But something else was at play. The devil was playing on that weakness. And the devil did take advantage of our situation in a way that he would make sure that we were always caged up. And if there was any hope that we got the key, he would try his best to make sure that we didn't get out of that cage. Why couldn't men listen to the word of God? Why don't men listen to the word of God today and say, oh, that's the truth. Now I understand what my real situation is. I'm going to turn to Jesus Christ and accept him as my saviour. Do people do that? That's so hard. Why is it so hard? Well, Jesus explained why it was so hard. Because when he preached to them, when he shared the message, he encountered the same resistance. And he tells them in John 8.43... Why do you, need to un do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Hear of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. In 2 Corinthians 4.3, Paul says, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is, the, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. There is an identification of people who are unsaved with the devil. The devil is their father. Satan is their father. They have, in a sense, been adopted into his family. And they are happily staying there. And he will do everything in his power to make sure that they stay within his family. But those who have put their faith in Christ are then adopted into a different family. They no longer belong to the original family. They've been freed from that identification. We now identify ourselves with Christ. In John 8.42, Jesus says, He said unto them, If God were your father, you would love me. 
for I proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Jesus plainly says that there are those who have God as their father and there are those who have Satan as their father. The ones who have Satan as their father are the ones who are lost eternally. Who have no hope unless they are freed. That is the difference between the saved and the unsaved. We now recognise the goodness of God. We recognise that we are in his family. We love the Lord because of what he's done for us. That is the difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. In John 10, 10, 26, Jesus says, But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. That is where we sit today. That is where we stand today. We are known of him, and we know him in a much different way than everyone else does. We know him personally. We had some sort of an experience in our lives, those of us who have put our faith in him, where we met him along the way, just like those disciples along the Emmaus road. They met him, they experienced him, and they know that the resurrection is real. And he's done something for us that no other man could. He saved us from our sin. But when Satan saw that we were saved, when Satan sees that we are in another family, do you think that his attention is off us? No. In fact, he tries all the more now. Not to bring us back to his family because he's lost us. What he can do is destroy the fellowship that we have with our father and make us useless children. If he couldn't stop us from accepting the truth, he will do his best to stop you doing what God has called you to do. And he did this. He does this, first of all, by telling us, and we saw in that sermon, he attacks the character of our Father in heaven. That's the first thing that he did. That he did. And he will continue to do it. When you and I go through struggles in our lives... Rest assured, one of the first things that comes into our mind is God does not love me anymore. God has abandoned me. God doesn't really care about me. That does not come from the inside. That comes from the outside. Because he's reminding you, he's telling you the same lie that he told Adam and Eve, the same thing he tells everyone else, that God is untrustworthy. God doesn't really care about you. God is only in it for himself. He wants all the glory and he doesn't care about you at all. That's what he told Adam and Eve. That's how he deceived Eve. So we need to be aware of Satan's lies. That's where he always starts. If we know his lies, we can prepare ourselves for his lies. In the third sermon, we began to look at the three avenues or the avenues with which Satan attacks the believer and the non-believer. We began to look at the way he breaks or attempts to break our relationship with God and makes us unusable for the work of the gospel. He, did, he does this through the flesh which is still attached to us. The flesh is still there. Does anyone never get tempted? Is there anyone here who doesn't get tempted at all to sin? The fact that you're tempted, the fact that we struggle with sin tells us that we still carry around this flesh within us, which is infested with sin. You see, God, God cleansed us, but that's still, that sin is still there. The flesh has to die eventually. You know, when you and I are, if, we're, if we see that blessed hope, if the Lord comes one of these days in our lifetime, the flesh that we have is gone. We are given new bodies. And the reason we're given new bodies is that the flesh cannot be redeemed. The flesh can't be changed. It can't be converted. The flesh has to die. And Satan attacks us through that flesh that we carry around with us. 
That's why the Bible says, I die daily. But that's why the Bible says we must crucify the flesh daily. We have to be active in killing it every day because it's still floating around. It takes effort to kill. Those of you who have grown up on farms know the effort it takes to kill a cow or any type of animal. Those who are born in the city who, who have their portions bought at, uh, at Coles don't understand necessarily as, as much of that area. But there is effort involved with killing. And the Bible tells us to kill daily, to attack the flesh, to put it down, to crucify it, because that's where it belongs, dead. That's why Paul keeps on saying, consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to Christ. What is he saying? He knows that we've still got the flesh. He knows that the, the, the thing in my old character is, can't please God at all. So the only thing to do with it is to kill it and to feed the new nature as much as you possibly can. Satan seeks to tempt us through that flesh, through that weakness that we still have. And there are three ways that we saw that he attacks us. Those three ways were the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. It is through these three avenues that he tempted Eve. It is through these three avenues that he tempted Christ and failed. It's the, through these three avenues that he, he attacks both believers and non-believers and works. And what does he promise through, through, those, um, through those avenues? That sin can give us pleasure. The, the, the goal of sin is pleasure. Sin promises pleasure. But it's only temporary. There's always a price to pay for that pleasure. Sin's destructive forces always follow. Always. If you, if you commit sin, you will pay for that sin. One way or the other. There is no... You can't just hide it in a closet. You can't just keep it on the side and keep it under control. It doesn't work like that. It makes you pay each and every time. Yes, for the believer, there are consequences. There are fruits that are gained depending on what you plant. We are not immune to the law of sowing and reaping. But there are social impacts. There are many people that aren't here today that should be here because they've chosen sin over God. These seats are empty and I know people and people are coming through my mind now that should be here right now. But because they've literally chosen a sinful path, they can't be here with us. why the Bible says exhort one another daily while it is called today because soon it will not be called today it will be called eternity lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin so, so we've looked at the deceitfulness of sin we've seen how cunning the devil is we've seen the avenues in which he attacks us we've seen the consequence of sin in our lives but we haven't seen how sin hardens and what it means to harden so we're going to look at that now the first thing I want you to understand is that today is that the goal of sin is to enslave. It seeks to enslave the person. That's what its goal is. Its goal is to continually keep you bound. And that's the goal of the devil as well. In John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Whosoever committeth sin is a servant of sin. To serve someone means you are under their authority. So when people sin, they place themselves under the authority of sin. And sin has dominion upon them. It's a bit like one who's addicted to drugs. You may take some sort of drug. I'm talking about these illicit drugs. You may take a drug and it might make you feel well, make you feel good, might take away all the pain, might make you forget about all your problems in life, 
might make might give you a euphoric feeling, but then there's this time when you've got to come down from that. And then there's a craving that comes after that too. And then before you know it, you can't live without it. And it consumes your life. Those who commit sin become slaves to sin. And even those once delivered from the bondage of sin can get caught up in it again. We are not immune from being trapped by this thing again. Don't think to yourselves at all that because you're saved now and your and your salvation is secure that you are somehow immune from the effects of sin and you can't be caught up with it anymore and you can play around with it a little bit on the side. I'll tell you now, if you think that, you will be caught up with it and it will have you bound. And I know there are some that are bound already. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 2 for me, please. Second Peter chapter two verse nineteen says While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption. For of whom a man is overcome, the same is he brought into bondage. For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it happened unto them, according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. There are Christians who have gone that way. There are Christians who, once they've understood the truth of God and seen the blessing, get enticed back into the world and reject what they had originally. And their end is worse. They become worse people than what they were before. Now, I don't think this is talking about salvation. I think this is talking about what happens to people when they play around with sin. And I think it can happen to believers and non-believers as well. I think there are a lot of non-believers who are in church today who are playing the Christian role, who are living decent lives, who know that what they're reading or what they're being preached is the truth. So what they do is they, they try and live a good moral life. And in many respects, we can't distinguish between the Christian and the non-Christian who are among us. Because some people live a very good moral life that we find it hard to distinguish. But if they don't have the Spirit of God within them, it's all for nothing. And there are many of those who have actually fallen away and become worse, much worse. They actually become attackers of the Christian faith. Because they never really understood it or experienced it. Sin always enslaves. It always seeks to entrap the believer again. If it can get us trapped again, we become useless. And God has, I believe, taken some Christians away because they became sources of um, blasphemy. I'm not saying that he threw them into hell. What I'm saying is that he called them home like a disobedient child because they were causing all types of problems. Sin enslaves. It always enslaves. The only way a person can be freed from that enslavement is by Christ. There is no other way. doesn't matter how hard we try to live good, decent, moral lives. There is only one way. To be freed, and that's through the one who holds the key to free you. The natural consequence of doing something over and over and over again is what we call habit. This is 
where people get hardened with sin. We know that there are, there, we've all got habits, one way or another. I mean, I've got a certain way I shave. Okay? I've got a certain way that I put soap on my face and I shave from this side and then I shave, and then I do this part. If I go to each one of you, you've all got your own ways of shaving, don't you? And you do it the same way every time, I know. Or pretty much the same way every time. And we have a lot of habits in our lives. We, most of us you know, wake up at a certain time, we like a certain type of breakfast, we, we, we're in routines. And that's okay, certain habits are good habits to form, aren't they? Other habits aren't as good habits to form. But habits, nonetheless, are difficult to break. Some are harder to break than others. When a man gets, um, when a man gets married, he may have had certain habits which were okay in his single life, which don't really fit anymore in a married life. He may have been used to, when he was living on his own, throw his dirty clothes in the corner, for instance, until they piled up to a certain height. And then he got called his mum and his mum, or dropped them off to his mum or whatever he did, and, and they were clean. When you're married, it doesn't work like that anymore. Maybe in that environment it was okay. But when a man gets married, he needs to conform his habits to suit the family or to suit his partner as well. But wives know that certain habits are a lot harder to break, aren't they? And even though you've tried really hard to break certain habits, they just want to stick to those habits and they won't let them go. There are certain habits that are a lot harder to break than others. Things that are more convenient, that bring more pleasure. Sometimes it takes a long time to break certain habits. But there's a problem. When a habit is reinforced, is reinforced by an addictive tool, it becomes really hard to break. Now, I'll give you an example of what I mean. Smoking is a habit, right? This business here. People get that, that sort of business over there. People get in that habit of doing that. But the problem with smoking, it's not just a habit which makes you feel good. There's an addictive element or chemical in there which your brain then says that it needs on top of the habit that you have. Not every habit is chemically addictive, but smoking is. So now you've got a habit and then you've got an addictive element to it which combined together make it twice as hard, if not more, to get rid of it. A person may be a casual smoker, but there's always a fine line between being a casual smoker and being an addicted smoker. Our government does well to actually portray those nasty pictures on TV. Have you seen them? The ones that they show you where they get, people get mouth cancers and throat cancers and all that sort of stuff. Why do they do that? Because they know that this stuff actually causes those things. And there's nothing wrong with them showing you the consequences of those things. And maybe we should be a little bit more... Um, maybe we should do the same in church. Maybe we should be a little bit like that towards sin. If we were like that, maybe we'd get people to realise how bad sin actually is. Anyway, when it comes to sin, we need to be aware that though sin may be pleasurable for a season... And it feeds the flesh, it nourishes it, it strengthens it. Like any good dose of nicotine or narcotic, it's something that then the sin nature craves and declares it can't live without. Thus sin is the worst of what we call bad habits. Its only consequence is death for the individual and a life of absolute misery. It deceives, it imprisons, and then it finally entombs. It will finish you off. Like smoking, like drugs, like a lot of other things that we know around us. But the Bible says, exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Hardening. 
Romans chapter 2 verse 4. Turn with me there for a moment. Romans 2 verse 4 says, O, or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to every man according to his deeds. There are two types of criminals in this world. Two types of criminals. There are those who are petty criminals who do it on the side and you know a few, you know, had, had the, the certain crimes and had to commit them. Then there are those who we call hardened criminals. Those who have known the depths of crime. Those who have been it for a very long time and who automatically think like that. It comes to them naturally. Those whose minds always think on crime and whom crime and which crime is a natural part of life for them. But notice how the scripture says that in verse 5, but after thy hardness and impenitent heart. See, hardness has a lot to do with impenitence. What's impenitence? Well, it's not being penitent or remorseful. It's feeling no shame. It's impervious to some sort of a moral conviction. In other words... They know what they've done is wrong. They've been told what they've done is wrong. They may have been put in jail for a while and understood that there are consequences to pay. But they've justified it so much in their own minds that it becomes part of their life. And they're no longer repentant. They don't care anymore. You see, when you first commit a sin, when you first do something wrong and it burns your conscience, when someone tells you you've done something wrong there, you feel that burning inside, don't you? Because it corresponds to what your conscience tells you. But if you do that thing over and over and over and over again, by the, by, by the time you, it becomes natural to you, someone comes to you and says, oh, you've done something wrong. I don't care. That person has become hardened in their heart. A man was once asked, are you a believer? Oh, certainly, he said. He said, you're a member of a church, then I suppose? Member of a church? No. Indeed, why should I be a member of a church? It's quite unnecessary. The dying thief wasn't a member of a church, and he went to heaven. But of course, you've been baptised. You know the command. Being baptised? Oh, no, that's another needless ceremony. I'm as safe as a dying thief was. And he was never baptised. But surely since you will not join a church or be baptised, you will do some, uh, something to acknowledge your faith. You give, you might love, and you help the cause. No, sir, I do nothing of the kind. The dying thief. Let me remark, my friend, before you go any further that you seem to be on pretty intimate terms with a dying thief. You seem to derive a great deal of consolation from his career. But mind you, there is one important difference between you and him. He was a dying thief, and you are a living one. This man convinced himself he didn't have to go to church, he didn't have to give, he didn't have to get baptised, he didn't have to do all those things because he hung his hat on one particular thing, taken out of context. You know how many people are around like that? Do you know how many people justify what they do, even using the Bible to do it? They justify themselves and they fully convince in their own minds that what they're doing is right. Those people have become hardened in their hearts and will not listen when they're told. When people sin, their conscience is alerted. And they can respond in one of two ways. They can admit their guilt and repent of their sin or they can ignore their conscience and continue to sin. When people desire to sin, 
more than obey the voice of their conscience, they begin by offering excuses for it. And they offer more excuses and more excuses. And eventually, it becomes a reason for them to live. It becomes actually a good thing for them to do. For instance, many people excuse their sin by blaming it on someone else. Or the environment they've grown up in. Or the devil or a variety of other reasons. God doesn't give us excuses. God doesn't allow excuses. The problem is when people persist in sin long enough, they begin to hate God because he tells them that their sin is wrong. The longer the longer it persists, the more habitual the sin, the less excuses are offered, the more natural it becomes. That's why 1 Timothy 4.2 says, Speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. People in this position have to speak lies. Their whole life becomes a lie. The simple message here is that if you persist in sin, you will inevitably become hardened to sin and your life will be full of hypocrisy. The prison that Christ freed you from will once again become a home for you. And there will be no guarantee that you will be freed before you die. That's another place, nice way to die. It's for someone who has been freed from sin, the bondage of sin, to then go back to it and then to have to face their Lord back in the prison. Sin should be avoided at any cost. Sin should be seen for the evil that it is. We should fight it each and every day. Because it is the reason that Jesus died on the cross. It is the reason that people go to hell for eternity. And it is the reason that the church of God is so useless these days. But I understand there are particular sins that we struggle with. And sometimes they're very difficult for us to forsake. There are things that have got us by the neck. And they're hard to leave behind. Which brings us to the start of the verse. Exhort one another daily while it is called today. Exhort one another. Encourage one another to fight the good fight each and every day. That is our duty as brethren. That's why Hebrews 10.25 also says, Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another. And so much the more as you see the day approaching. Hang on, what's he talking about? Exhorting and assembling. Well, you know something? When we get together, part of the reason that we're here is that we're meant to be encouraging one another to fight, to keep it up, because it's not easy. And if you think you're alone, you're not. But we're all in it together. But we should be encouraging each other. We should be finding out how we're actually going. And we should be encouraging. Part of my role is to, is to encourage you to fight this fight from the pulpit. But it's not just my job. There's an imperative that each of us has as the day draws nearer. To encourage each other. To rebuke each other. To edify and help build up. So we can fight this fight. Because there are some who are falling by the wayside. And we don't care sometimes. It's done best speaking heart to heart, one on one. And it covers all the relationships in the church, whether they be friends. If you're a friend with someone else, you can exhort someone else. You can, you can help speak to them on a heart to heart basis. If you're parents, you need to do it with your children. If you're Sunday school teachers, you can help your pastors and parents with their children to exhort them to fight. The older should exhort the younger. All church members have a responsibility to other church members to help one another to fight this thing which is everywhere. Sometimes a small word can make a big difference in someone's life. But this requires patience, I know. It requires patience. Sometimes we get impatient with each other, don't we? Not everyone's at the same level as me 
spiritually. But yet again, I'm not at the same place as someone else. There is none of us who can claim superiority in this game. Because none of us are superior. None of us has conquered sin completely. We all struggle with it. That's why we have to help each other. Because what I'm strong in, you might not be strong in. So I can help you in that. But what you're strong in, I might not be strong in. We all have experiences. We all have a certain amount that we've grown. That's what God wants us to do, to use the experience that we've had. That's why the older people are such a, a blessing and a value in the church. That experience can't be bought. That experience for, of older people who have gone through their teens and have gone through their, their middle age and all sort of stuff, the experience they can bring and help the younger ones not to fall in the same traps that they may have fallen into is invaluable. But by the same token, the younger ones also have a responsibility to encourage the older ones. Because each of us is at a different stage in life. And at different stages in life, we encounter different problems. And each of us has different responsibilities at home, at work, and everywhere else. We come here in, on Sunday mornings full of concerns from the week, don't we? We come in worrying about our jobs, worrying about our families, having conflicts with other people. There are so many things that, that crowd our minds that we need to be here for one another. None of us is perfect. None of us is free from any concerns. But we're here to help one another. We need to always understand that. It requires patience of us. We need to be patient with each other. And when you, when you struggle with being patient, always remind yourself how patient God was with you and me. Because when you really comprehend how patient God is with us, it'll only help you to be patient with other people. We need patience with each other. We need love and concern for one another because we can't fight alone. God has brought us together for a reason because we can't fight this thing ourselves. So, we're called to help each other while it is called today because tomorrow never comes, I've heard it once said. I remember there was a, a poster that I once saw in my brother's room. He used to have it up for a while. And it actually something that, that, that really impressed me for a very, very long time. And it said simply, live as though Christ died yesterday, rose today, and is coming tomorrow. If we live like that, I reckon we'd live pretty decent lives, wouldn't you? We'd make the use of every minute. Let me close. If you're a sinner, if you're someone who isn't saved this morning, there is tremendous hope for you. There is hope because the gospel tells you that there's hope. And that hope is only in the blood of Jesus Christ. Because he, he died in your place, he shed his blood for that sin that you've committed, so you don't have to go to hell. If you haven't put your faith in him this morning, rest assured you are still in a prison. And you will die in that prison and you will spend an eternity in a prison. Far away from God. Alone. In great torment. But the gospel of Christ can break the sin. Can break that seal that's around your heart. If you allow him to. If you just trust him a little bit. If you just say, Lord, I trust what you did for me. I believe in who you are. Come and save him. Trust him. He never lets anyone down. He never will. And for the Christian who's struggling with sin, we read this passage every time we have communion. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. God doesn't want any of his children condemned. That's why he disciplines them. We should give thanks to God for that. Because some of us are caught up in things that we shouldn't be doing. And God disciplines his children so they're not condemned with the world. God loves us beyond what we understand. But God needs to discipline us sometimes. It's better that we judge ourselves 
and we look at our own lives from his perspective rather than being disciplined though, isn't it? It's better that we come to God and we say, God, I realise I've made an error here. I repent and I'm, I'm turning to you for forgiveness rather than waiting for God to give you a bit of a reminder that you're not walking on the right track. God loves us. In Hebrews 12, 5 it says, And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not now the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as his sons. For what son is he whom the Father chasteneth not? God loves us. And he allows us to go through difficult things because he wants the best for us. So if you're going through a difficult time now, don't blame God. Don't forth the lie of Satan that says that God doesn't love you. God's allowing you to go through certain things because he wants you stronger. Or he's disciplining you. Don't reject God's discipline. At times it may seem impossible to break through the hard hearts of the loved ones that are around us. Our families, our friends, the ones that we've spoken to time and time again who don't want to hear the gospel. The ones who are deceived by sin. But let's not underestimate the power of the gospel. Never underestimate what the Holy Spirit can do in a person's life, even when from our side of the fence it looks hopeless. God can do amazing things. That's why we need to persist to share that gospel, to live it. To share the love of God because he can break their hard hearts. You know something? There's plenty of rock over there in Epping. You know, I built my house out. I think they took out a, a, a pile of rocks. It was taller than me and we took photos of it. They had much rocks they pulled out of the ground. And a lot of those rocks they had to probably blast or, or jackhammer. You know, God's, God is like a jackhammer sometimes. Sometimes people's hearts are so hard, he has to jackhammer that hard just to get them to a point where they will accept the truth. If that is the case, so be it. It's better for them to go through hardship and to be broken than for them to be thoroughly destroyed. Let's help those who need help. Let's encourage one another, exhort one another, while it is called today... Lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. God bless you. Thank you.